Corinthians 4. That's where we'll spend most of our time together in the first edition, the first edition. 1 Corinthians 4. I think we've all been in class at one point or another in elementary school or high school or beyond. And the teacher is asking a question, and you know they have a specific answer in mind, but you have no idea what that answer is. And so the students start shouting out answers, kind of fishing for what it is that the teacher secretly wants. Uh, I know that even in Sunday school, I have a tendency to do that, and people look at me with blank stares as they give really great answer after another, trying to figure out what syncretic thing that videos are I have locked away in my mind. I remember being in a class in grad school and having a staggering thing happen the very first day of class. The professor handed out a syllabus, and he said, I want you to turn to the back of the syllabus and things like 40 pages. And on the back was a sheet, maybe five or six pages long, with just a list. And it was a list of names and dates and places and theological terms. There were, I want to say, just shy of 300 things on that list. And he said, I want you to know up front the expectation for you over the course of the semester in this class is to be familiar with and to have a command over those 283 things listed in that facilities. There are no surprises. There are no illusions to hiding the secret thing in my mind. You're going to have a couple of papers to write, and then there's going to be a final at the end of the semester, and all of the questions will be right off of this sheet. And so you could, if you were so inclined, go back on day one that evening, go back, Find the definition, the reason behind each one of those names, dates, places, theological terms. Write out a definition for each one of them and memorize it over the next week. And if you had checked out the entire rest of the semester, you still could have aced the final because he told you on day one exactly what he wanted you to walk away with after you had been through his course. Now, over the last month, we've been talking about the mission of God. That God has always worked alongside a chosen people. He's always employed a chosen people to share the good news and the hope of Jesus Christ with all of his image bearers, inviting them into his kingdom. And it would be really easy, if you were not careful, to misunderstand what the objective is at the end of our study of the mission of God. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. The Bible isn't obtuse when it comes to the end of the course. Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 4, first few verses, is going to be explicitly clear about what's expected of you in the mission of God. He's going to tell you up front, here are the names and the dates and the places and the terms to memorize as you move forward, so that when the exam comes, you can ace it with a clear conscience. I tell you, false idea that comes up maybe more than any other is this. I know what's expected of me, someone might say, not maybe having dove into the New Testament of what it says about our achievement and the mission of God. I know what's expected of me. i got to have results. And I think what we're really talking about here is family outreach. And I can grade myself on the number of people that I have led to Christ personally. Right? Isn't that what's really expected of me? Show me the numbers. 
Show me the results. Show me the spreadsheet of all the work that I've done. In fact, that's not all what Paul says is a biblical definition of success in participating in the mission. In fact, what it says is this. The Bible's definition of success in ministry is built on faithfulness. It's built on faithfulness. That's what we'll be talking about today. Let me read to you what Paul says here in the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found, what? Faithful. Though with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, and I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce a judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now in it in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then you shall receive his condemnation. Father, help us to understand what you want from us in passages that are clear like this one, 1 Corinthians 4. Help us to be found faithful. In Jesus' name. All right. Here in uh, 1 Corinthians, we are introduced to a church that is arguably the most miserable in the entirety of the New Testament. I, I understand occasionally I'll run to someone and I'll ask, hey, where do you go to church? And we go, oh, we go to Ephesus Baptist. And they go, okay, uh, Ephesus. They've got their issues, but that's a pretty decent church. Or we go to Philippi Baptist. Or we go to the Laodicean Baptist Church. Why anyone would name their church the Corinthian Baptist Church in particular? I think, have you ever read 1st or 2nd Corinthians? These are some of the most miserable figures in the entirety of the New Testament. And they're caught up in a number of things that would shock even the church today. So not only were they involved in things like bizarre sexual ethics where half the people in the congregation were absolutely abstinent, even in marriage. Good for them. The other half of the congregation is so lascivious that there's a man in the congregation in a position of leadership who's sleeping with his stepmother. This is a congregation that's involved in a number of lawsuits that's dividing the congregation, a number of weird rituals around communion that is dividing the congregation. But maybe the definitive characteristic of the church in Corinth is that, and Paul lays it out in the first chapter, the people have started choosing for themselves apostles to align themselves. So some were well known, we meet them here in the New Testament, some maybe we've never heard of them. Some are called apostles, some are even called super apostles. I don't know how you get that title, right? I'm a shepherd. How do you get super shepherd? What level of video game would you level up to a super apostle? I don't know. And so some people were Peter people, and some people were John people, and some were Paul, and some were Barnabas, and some were others. And it's not super uncommon today to find someone who's absolutely fixated. Well, I'm a Chuck Smith doll guy. No, I'm a John MacArthur guy. No, I'm a David Jeremiah guy. And what Paul says there in chapter 1 is, shouldn't we all be Jesus people? Yeah, you may like or appreciate the ministry of someone in particular, but that doesn't mean that you follow them. None of those people follow other people. They follow Jesus. And so here in chapter 4, this occurs a few times in Paul starts talking about how we should think of people in ministry. How you should regard them. In the first five verses here, he says three things. 
Three things about how you should regard people in ministry. First, the people who bear the gospel are servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Right? They are servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. It would be really easy if you read that too quickly to think of that as a very lofty or elevated title. There's a certain literary flair to stewards of the mystery of God. But in fact, that's that was my best James Earl Jones. It's the exact opposite of what Paul is talking about here. The two terms that he uses are absolutely fascinating. The first one is that we are servants of Christ, that he's the one in control. Servants of Christ and then stewards, stewards of the mysteries of God. The emphasis is on people as servants and God as the master. The one who commands those servants. The author of the message borne by those servants. Right. The first term we use their servants is uh, imperatory. Uh, it's assistant. These are the assistants. Right. Uh, it, it would be a ridiculous thing for an assistant to walk into the boss's office and throw their feet up on his desk. If any of you have ever seen The Office, one of my favorite running gags in my whole show is that Dwight calls himself the assistant regional manager. And occasionally the boss comes in and goes, assistant to the regional manager. So even on his business card, occasionally Dwight is sitting at his desk and he's taking Dwight out and he's taking the two thumb off the card. Uh, you have to listen to me. I'm the assistant, re- assistant to the right. Uh, I'm the assistant regional manager over here at the church. No, 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 you're the assistant to the regional manager who is Christ himself. It's assistant. Even the term that follows that, uh, steward. Steward's a fascinating term as well. In a household, you would have the owner of the house. And he would have chosen one of the servants to run the place while he was gone throughout the day. And that person was called a steward. And so when the homeowner came home at the end of the day, he would report to the master of the house all of the things that had gone on, how the other servants had performed, what had got done, who had visited the business of the house, etc. And then the master of the house would have dealt with the steward as he saw fit based on his performance. Any of you who have ever just gone absolutely nerd and watched the Lord of the Rings movies knows that there's a kingdom called Gondor. And that Gondor's line of kings disappeared many, many years ago. So the throne in Gondor high and elevated in the throne room has gone unoccupied for decade after decade after decade. But there has been someone who has been running Gondor in the absence of the king, and that's called the steward. He doesn't sit on the king's throne. He sits on a very humble chair at the base of the throne of the king. And when the king returns, the steward answers the that's the verbiage that's used here in 1 Corinthians 4, the very first verse. What are you? I'm the assistant to Christ. I am the steward. I am not in charge here. I answer to the one who is in charge here. That's my role. That's where we start. That's the first observation that Paul makes here in regard to what is expected of us. It's not that we would be great, influential, powerful, domineering sorts of leaders. We're just servants. We're servants who serve him. Anybody who dares take up this word and do their work in the mission of God is a servant. It's their defining model. I've often thought it would work an absolute fortune to have a custom headstone made about what verse I might like chiseled on that stone. 
I love what David says of himself in Psalm 1, that uh, he delighted on the law and on his law he meditated day and night. That would be a great one. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 would be another great one. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I can illustrate this. Maybe even better than I can describe it. I can illustrate it to you through parking lots. When uh, we were students in grad school, we had an assignment to visit several large churches in the area <coughs> for how they did things. And one week we visited T.D. Jakes Church. And T.D. Jakes, as you know, a big prosperity gospel teacher and preacher, has an incredible homiletical flair that says an awful lot of things that are nowhere in the Bible. But we drove up to his church, and it's 10,000 people on Sunday morning, three or four services, absolute madness. And the very first parking spot in a parking lot that stretches on for like a quarter of a mile, there's a Rolls Royce with a custom plate. This is T.D. Jakes' car. You get into the church, and he has an entire wing of offices and rooms and etc. that's reserved just for him. He's brought out through a door in the back of the stage to come out and preach. And while he's out there, there are a whole host of the biggest dudes I've ever seen standing here in front so that nobody can get TV. And in between the services and after the service is over on Sunday morning, he walks right out back that door because TV's not talking to anybody. There's no contact. Hard to think of how that guy serves his congregation instead of thinking about how they serve him. You may be at this point thinking of Mark 10, I think it's verse 10, in the description there of Jesus that he came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life in the general How's that pastor I grew up with? His name Eric. That church is much smaller, maybe seven or eight hundred people. Eric, I remember, turned in his 91 Honda to get an 89 Acura. And he parked in the very furthest corner of the parking lot. And he parked there for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, um, he didn't want anyone, the elderly, anyone, have to walk uh, any further than he had. Right? Even in very small ways, in some way, he showed the foundation he thought that he was most deserving to walk the furthest way from the world. And then as he walked, he prayed. He prayed for the people who were walking there. And he prayed that there would be a day in the life of that church in which every part of the spot would be and more people than had ever been in the room to hear the gospel of Christ. And then again, not nearly as large as T.J. Jakes' church, but after the service, he wasn't walking out a little door in the back to hide in his office. You know what he did? He walked out into the foyer. And as hundreds of people descended out of the room, he stood right in the middle. And he shook hands until his fingers hurt. And, and I'm sure he got a number of good pats on the back. And it, just as many cranks and, hey, why didn't you say that? And we should have done this. And, should have, and he stood there for all of it. And, and, and in, even that, in where he parked, in where he stood when the service was done, he was proving how he thought of himself. And it's very first-person. I 
as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. He's a servant. One scholar says this, Paul's view of Christian leaders as an inverted pyramid where leaders are enslaved, belong to the community, and must serve it from below is radically different from the world's perception of leaders as free, high-status gods bestowing benevolences on those of lesser status. What is first expected of you? It's this, that you serve. That's what you are. When I sit at my desk and I study, I serve. When I take the pole off the room and attach it to the plunger to the work back there in the bathroom, I'm doing it to serve. How do you serve? around which we have been given the commission to teach, to baptize, to go, to make disciples. <coughs> Secondly, servants are required to be found faithful. Faithful. He says in verse 2, moreover, it is required of students that they be found faithful. Uh, interesting term there, pistos in the Greek. That's what that word is. And it's fascinating. If you spend an awful lot of time reading commentaries and theological dictionaries, you construe an extraordinarily complicated definition of what it means to be faithful. But essentially, it's this. Okay? To be faithful means to be loved. Reliable. To be reliable. Um, at some point in the history of the United States, as people traveled from east to west, they eventually made their way out to what we now know as uh, the geyser of old faithful, right? They're traveling. Why anyone traveling that direction uh, left Ohio? I'm not sure, right? They had already found it, but they kept going. That's what as that is. I assume just to start lesser colleges so that Ohio had somebody played football. That's why I did this. That's right. Poisonous nuts. Be careful. And they discovered this geyser. And this geyser shooting out rabbits. Not even the exact time. But it's like every 44 to 120 minutes. Every day, every year, every decade, it shoots up and down. Up and down. Up and down. It's old. That's what reliability looks like. Uh, I wish Jeff Collins was here this morning. His mom taught Sunday school at the Old Falls Road Baptist Church. And I'm going to say it was second or third grade. She taught that exact same class year in and year out for like 48 years. And in the history of her teaching that class, they only missed like 11 times. Think about that. And she walked through something like nine presidential administrations and missed about 1.2 Sundays per president. She got in, she talked to kids, she got out, she showed up again next The kind of reliability of faithfulness that it takes a ministry like that is almost unheard of today. Because I tell you what happens in modern churches, it's I have served in this for six months and no one has said thank you. And I'm just not feeling it anymore. And you know what? I think maybe God is calling me to something else. I'm just passionate about it. And so you find people, and they've had 20 jobs, and they're like 32 years old. And you ask them to serve in church, and they're like, how many weeks do you want us to serve? And 
Bruno not beats ears properly. And so every time something doesn't feel exactly as it should feel, they move on to the next thing, the next ministry, the next church, the next group, the next. Reliability is what Paul is talking about. Reliability. I can count on you. I know exactly what you're going to do. You're old faithful. You're going to do the same thing over and over and over and over. And this is what it means to be successful in ministry. A servant who shows up and does what they have been called to do. Not because of the results. Not because they got a high of how good it felt to see a bunch of tangible things achieved, but because the message is good. Not because there was great fanfare over what they had done, but because the work was worth doing in and of itself. Paul saying this, and Paul's one of those interesting figures. If you ask him, hey, Paul, uh, you've just arrived in town. Would you say that in the place that you're coming from, did you have a terribly successful ministry? Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. Preach the gospel. It was awesome. Oh, man, that's awesome. I'm so excited to hear about what you did in, in, in Lystrum and in Iconium and in Derby. So, so you must have left, and they threw a parade, and they cheered you out of town, and they sent you away with many. Well, no, we ran out, and they, they threw rocks at our head as we ran what definition is Paul using of success? I guarantee it's not this. It's not how many people converted in that particular place. It's this. I got up that morning. I took the message, the word that I could hear. I related with enthusiasm and clarity. And then I got up the next day and did it again. And the next day again and again and again and again and again. And I leave the results to God. That's faithfulness. It's reliability. Thirdly, Paul leaves the work of judging the quality of his ministry to the Lord and encourages the Corinthians to get out of the business of critiquing. He encourages the Corinthians to get out of the business of critiquing. This is like evangelical Christendom's favorite hobby. I see how you did it. Here's how I would have done it. And here's how that would have been better. This is what he says. And I love the verbiage that he uses here. But for me, it is a very small thing, he says in verse 3, that I should be judged by you or any human court. The term he uses there is trifling. It's not a big deal. It's inconsequential. The idea that we're getting is not like this strong, rebuffing, uh, man, you can't say nothing to me. It's, it's, it's just indifference. I'm indifferent to your assessment of my ministry. It's a very small and trifling thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I am not in the business of assessing how good or bad I have done by these simple human standards. Verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not therefore acquitted. It doesn't mean that I always know myself well. Maybe I'm doing a great job, maybe I'm not. But it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then, when he comes and has done that work, then everybody will know exactly what they will receive as condemnation from God. Now, here's what Paul's not saying. Paul's not going like full Kanye, right? This, this is not the easy, uh, nobody can judge me but God. Well, of course, the Bible gives us a lot of understanding about 
how we judge in wisdom that which is biblical and that which is not. It's not defiance like Kanye's defiant. It's just, look, I've been faithful. And if you're using numerical results, or if you're using, and this is what the Corinthians love to do, how good of a preacher was Paul? Apparently, he was not a really great preacher. There were other guys who were a lot smoother than he was, a lot more suave as they communicated. If that's what you're using, Paul tells Corinthians, it doesn't matter much. That's not the important thing. That's not how we judge this whole deal. You like the homiletical flair? Great. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that I've been found reliable to the message that was given to me. Do you reckon with this? This is your job. You are not first a great leader of men. You are a servant of the high priest. You are an assistant to the master who sits on a throne upon which you will never sit. And all he asks you to do is to do your job over and over and over and over and over again. See, I haven't seen great crowds burst in exultation in their newfound salvation in Christ. It's okay. It's not your job. See, you just be in fact, this is what we learn about God in passages like this one. That the great praises that are lavished upon these servants in the church in the New Testament era, Silas and Tychicus and Epaphras and Onesimus, you know what they're all called? As Paul says, yeah, these guys are their faith. Not that they're persuasive or highly skilled. They're faithful. The Lord requires Faithfulness from his people, not results. Faithfulness, not results. There's a phenomenal, but deeply, deeply flawed movie called Little Gary, Little Lost, which centers on a single night in history of a company that sells real estate. Alan Baldwin comes in as the boss's boss and says, This great screed and this great red A, B, Always be closed. Whoever has the greatest sales this month gets a Cadillac. The second place guy, or he gets a set of nine. The third place guy, he gets fired. Always be closed. And then he just demolishes everybody. They're all losers. He's a success. Show me the numbers. And there could be anything more antithetical to what the Bible says about success than that. Success is John Adams. This very young man takes off with his new life and heads to the New Hebrides, an island nation in the South Pacific, it's now called Panama. And they're chased out of innumerable islands before they finally settle on one that's seemingly safe enough from the tribal persons there for them to occupy. And then his new young wife and their new baby boy gets saved. He has given everything that we as humans count here on this earth to service of the king, and they have not seen one problem. 
And if it were me, and I doubt that I ever would have gotten on the boat in the first place, but if it were me and I found myself in that spot, I would have been on the first schooner out, send me to Australia or back to England or someplace halfway civilized. So he goes home, and he rehears and recounts and rethinks and prays and prays and prays and goes back. He gets married again. They have more children. They endure seasons of sickness that would kill most of us. They nearly kill them. <coughs> they endure a violent tribe of cannibals that would just as soon eat them as hear the gospel. And they back. And now that nation, over a hundred years later, is something like 85% Secondly, God alone is able to bring to fruition his sovereign plan. Augustine would say, only God can do the work of God. I'm not seeing the numbers. I'm not seeing the converts. I'm not seeing the masses arrive like they did in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and on. When will I see the great results? Not your job. Don't worry about it. That's God. Can you present the good news of Christ to men and women? Sure you can. Can you change their hearts? But you're never asked to. God says, I'm the king. I'll do the work of the king. You're the servant. You do the work of the servant. Just do your job. Proclaim. Proclamation. That's it. But what does that say about us? What does that say about us? First, we should just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep doing the work. It is going to be terribly depressing sometimes. You're going to have seasons in ministry. If, if you are doing any ministry at all, you're going to have seasons where you are going to put in more effort and spend more time and, and, and work harder to see fewer results. You might absolutely throw your heart into something that's worthwhile and see it just cut around. That's not only possible, it's likely that you do ministry for any of those. You're doing all the right things. You're pushing all the right buttons. You said all the right words. And it's still just right down the line. That's what's happening. You just keep going. You just keep going. Like the old coach says, you're going to paralyze existence with persistence. Just keep going. And, and here's the really wonderful thing. And tragic maybe for you if you never thought about it at the same time. Maybe you'll never see it. That's not the point. I've always loved that movie, uh, Facing the Giants, the football movie, right? And at the beginning of the movie, uh, there's the coach, his team is bad, and his truck won't start, and he and his wife are trying to have a kid, and it's just not working. And there's some smell of funk in the house that he's going to find. And then, you know, he dedicates himself to Christ. We're really going to follow Christ. You know what happens? His wife gets pregnant, and he gets brand new truck, and they find a dead mouse in the register that smells on the house, and, and they win the state championship. 
That's a fun movie. But here's the thing. You may do all the right things and commit yourself to Christ and serve like Christ is serving. <coughs> and you may still drive all of you. And the folk may still be pervasive in your trust. Maybe you won't have the kids, maybe you won't lose everything in this season. And that's okay. Because faithfulness is the way. Just keep going. Second, faithfulness is still hard work. Faithfulness is still hard work. Producing results is God's work, but being faithful to the mission of God is our work. It doesn't mean that you can let your foot off the gas. It doesn't mean that you cannot do anything and say, hey, in my laziness, well, you know, I haven't seen any results and because results is God's work and, oh, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't get off the hook for not doing the great commission work that we've been given just because results are God's work. And I tell you, I've been in churches like that. And, and uh, I bet at some point you have been in a church like that. Little, uh, and I really hope nobody ever listens to this because this is going to be Little Victory Baptist Church, and I told you how we went there for several years when I was a kid, not only was it suffocating with fundamentalistic But we had a pastor, and the pastor would get up with the 11 people in the room on a Sunday night. You know what he would do? He would boast. And the boast was this. Well, you know, the Bible says that there will come a day when men will just want to have their ears tickled, and that's not who we are here at Victory Baptist Church. And he wore it as a badge of honor. There's no one in the room. Now, there are churches like that. There are absolutely spiritually healthy, hard-working, healthy churches. And they are doing it. And people are not doing it. That's true. But that church was sinfully uncreative about engaging the community around it. The fact that that room was empty was not a, an aberration in the life of that community. It wasn't something to be boasted about. That pastor and our congregation should have fallen on their knees and repented for refusing to fulfill the Great Commission. We can't for a moment, not for one day, get comfortable all we can see in this world, not for a second. And, and rationalize to ourselves that that's okay. I mean, if God really wanted to marry, he'd bring her in your life. That's God's work. But it doesn't abrogate the fact that you have been born to faithful, to be the servant, to do the work of the servant. Remember, her infant, but it is God who gives her work. It does not do for the mother to ignore her child and say that if God wanted the child to find him very well, he's on his own. That's asinine. And yet that kind of thinking is pervasive with a huge number of churches. God will change the hearts of men. And the mechanism he has graciously chosen to use to and me to faithfully engage in cultural violence. And in disobedience to that, there is a rationalization of justice. 
Here's what you're going to do. God, who are my people? Where is the child I want? Show me. Let me have the kind of endurance that God calls me to Joyfully, 